This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. Welcome to The Economist, offering authoritative insight and opinion on international news, politics, business, finance, science, and technology. Stay tuned for the go-to magazine for great minds around the globe, right here on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is a reading of The Economist, and I'm your reader, Mary Kiefer, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I will be reading from the January 27th through February 2nd, 2024 issue of The Economist, and I will begin with our cover story, How the Border Could Cost Biden the Election. Donald Trump's mother came from Tong, population 500, a remote Scottish settlement that was once in Viking territory. His grandfather came from Kolstad, population 1200, a Bavarian village that produced the Heinz family. Joe Biden's ancestors came from Ireland and England. In America, everyone is from somewhere else, even Native Americans, though they have been there much longer than anyone. Such is the country's appeal that 160 million adults around the world say they would move there too if only they had the chance. That is many millions more than most Americans are willing to allow in. This mismatch is at the heart of the issue that could cost President Biden the election. In 2016, Mr. Trump rode border chaos all the way to the Republican nomination and then on to the presidency. At the time, he campaigned as if record numbers of migrants were coming across the border illegally. That was not true then, but it is true now. There were nearly 250,000 attempts to cross the southern border in November alone. Most of the newcomers will have sought asylum and been released into America to wait years for their claims to be adjudicated. Since Mr. Biden became president, over 3.1 million border crossers have been admitted. That is more than the population of Chicago. At least a further 1.7 million have come in undetected or overstayed their visas. Republican governors have paid for migrants to go to places run by Democrats, forcing the problems of the southern border northward. Their experience helps explain why voters trust Republicans to deal with border security by a margin of 30 points. It is the party's biggest lead on any issue. This is not all Mr. Biden's fault. When America's labor market is tight, the incentive for people to head there illegally increases. That is why the numbers went up under Mr. Trump, too, until COVID-19 came along and fixed the problem for him. When travel became possible again in 2021, pent-up demand resulted in a surge of people across the southern border. 
More than half of border crossers are from countries beyond Mexico and the northern bit of Central America. Venezuelans make up the biggest part of this group. But tens of thousands now fly into the Americas from Russia, 43,000 in the year to September 2023. India, 42,000, and China, 24,000, and then attempt a crossing. Often it is impossible to return them. China will not take back its nationals if their applications are rejected. However, some of the blame lies squarely at Mr. Biden's door. Mr. Trump's language about Mexico sending rapists across the border and his cruel separation of children from their parents as a deterrent, along with his plan to build the wall, radicalized some Democratic policymakers on immigration. They thought public opinion was on their side. Voters did indeed revolt against Trumpism, and while he was in office, support for immigration reached a new high. When the new Democratic administration took power, its instinct was to do the opposite of whatever Mr. Trump had. Work on the border wall stopped. Democrats ditched the Remain in Mexico policy, which obliged asylum seekers to stay south of the border until the authorities decided on their applications. Predictably, illegal immigration surged. Since the midterms in 2022, Mr. Biden has quietly adopted some of Mr. Trump's policies. He has agreed to fill gaps in the wall. Asylum seekers who try to cross undetected will, with a few exceptions, automatically have their applications rejected. They must apply online before showing up. Yet Americans are unaware of these efforts, partly because Mr. Biden is loath to draw attention to his triangulation, lest his own side turns on him. The president's room to do one thing while saying another is running out. The House of Representatives has paired a stringent immigration bill with funding for Ukraine's war. The administration resents this because support for Ukraine makes economic and strategic sense for America, regardless of the country's policy on immigration. That is an error. Instead, in a system in which both parties use the leverage available to them, Mr. Biden should see this as an opportunity. Some of the Republican demands on immigration are sensible. Most migrants without visas, who cross at the southern border, do not crawl through the desert. They find a border patrol agent and present an asylum claim. They must then pass what is called a credible fear interview. Republicans want to raise the threshold for what counts as credible fear. That is a reasonable aim. Under Mr. Biden's rules, a fear of gang violence counts as a ground for being let in. Contrast that with Spain, which rejects, which rejects this test, even though it has a socialist prime minister. Once that first test is passed, immigrants are typically released, awaiting a court date years in the future. Because immigration courts are overstuffed with cases. The average wait for a hearing is over four years. Appeals can add to the delay. 
Democrats would like money to hire more officers to process claims and more judges to speed through the backlog of cases. That is reasonable also. There ought to be a deal here, yet each party mistrusts the other's motives. Republicans say they will not give more money to an administration they cannot trust to enforce immigration laws. Instead, they are trying to impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security. Democrats look at Republican demands, such as that families coming into the country can be detained indefinitely, and conclude that negotiations are being set up to fail, and are therefore really a weapon against Mr. Biden. The odds are that both parties will choose campaigning over deal-making. That should worry Mr. Biden. Our reporting from the Mexican side of the border suggests that if people believe Mr. Trump will win, many more will try to cross into America before he is inaugurated. Insecure borders weaken support for illegal immigration and boost restrictionist parties. Immigration could bring Mr. Trump back to the White House, from where he might pull America out of the refugee convention of 1951, causing it to collapse. Mr. Biden should call the Republicans bluff, roll up his sleeves, and set out to fix the border. That would be the right thing to do. It would also help his prospects. And now an article on technology, AI for All. Artificial intelligence holds a tantalizing promise of prosperity for the emerging world. New technology brings with it both the sweet hope of greater prosperity and the cruel fear of missing out. Satya Nadella, the boss of Microsoft, says he is haunted by the fact that the Industrial Revolution left behind India, his country of birth. Indian manufacturers hardly enjoyed a level playing field. Britain was then both their rival and their ruler. Many technologies, such as online education courses, have generated more hype than economic growth in the emerging world. Some people worry that generative artificial intelligence, too, will disappoint the global south. The big winners so far seem to be a bunch of Western early adopters, as well as startups in San Francisco and America's magnificent seven tech firms, which include Microsoft, and have together added an astonishing $4.6 trillion to their market value since ChatGPT's launch in November 2022. Yet AI stands to transform lives in the emerging world, too. As it spreads, the technology could raise productivity and shrink gaps in human capital faster than many before it. People in developing countries need not be passive recipients of AI, but can shape it to suit their own needs. Most exciting of all, it could help income levels catch up with those in the rich world. The promise of AI in developing countries is tantalizing. As in the West, it will be a useful all-purpose tool for consumers and workers, making it easier to obtain and interpret information. Some jobs will go, but new ones will be created. 
Because emerging countries have fewer white-collar workers, the disruption and the gain to existing firms may be smaller than in the West. The IMF says that a fifth to a quarter of workers there are most exposed to replacement, compared with a third in rich countries. But a potentially transformative benefit may come from better and more accessible public services. Developing developing economics have long been held back by a lack of educated, healthy workers. Primary school teachers in India have twice as many pupils as their American counterparts, but are ill-equipped for the struggle. Doctors in Africa are scarce. Properly trained ones are scarcer. Whole generations of children grow up badly schooled, in poor health, and unable to fulfill their potential in an increasingly global labor market. As our briefing this week sets out, policymakers and entrepreneurs around the world are exploring ways that AI can help. India is combining large language models with speech recognition software to enable illiterate farmers to ask a bot how to apply for government loans. Pupils in Kenya will soon be asking a chat box question about their homework, and the chat box will be tweaking and improving its lessons in response. Researchers in Brazil are testing a medical AI that helps under-trained primary care workers treat patients. Medical data collected worldwide and fed into AIs could help improve diagnosis. If AI can make people in poorer countries healthier and better educated, it should in time also help them catch up with the rich world. Pleasingly, these benefits could spread faster than earlier waves of technology. New technologies invented in the early 20th century took more than 50 years to reach most countries. In contrast, AI will spread through that gadget that many people across the emerging world already have, and many more soon will, the phone in their pockets. In time, chat box will become much cheaper to provide and acquire. Moreover, the technology can be tailored to local needs. So far, there is little sign that AI is ruled by the winner-takes-all effects that benefited America's social media and internet search firms. This means a variety of approaches could prosper. Some developers in India are already taking Western models and fine-tuning them with local data to provide a whizzy language translation service, avoiding the heavy capital costs of model building. Another idea that is also taking off in the West is to build smaller, cheaper models of your own, a narrow set of capabilities rather than the ability to get every bit of information under the sun can suit specific needs just fine. A medical AI is unlikely to need to generate amusing limericks in the style of William Shakespeare, as ChatGPT does so successfully. This will This still requires computing power and bespoke data sets, but it could help adapt AI in more varied and useful ways. 
Some countries are already harnessing AI. China's prowess is second only to America's, thanks to its tech know-how and the deep pockets of its internet giants. India's outsourcing industry could be disrupted as some back-office tasks are taken on by generative AI, but it is home to a vibrant startup scene as well as millions of tech developers and a government that is keen to use AI to improve its digital infrastructure. These leave it well-placed to innovate and adapt. Countries in the Gulf, such as the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, are determined to build an AI industry as they shift from oil. They already have the capital and are importing the talent. Each country will shape the technology in its own way. Chinese chat boxes have been trained to keep off the subject of shy Jinping. Chinese developers are focused on lowering language barriers. The Gulf is building an Arabic, an Arabic, an Arabic large language model. Though the global South will not dislarge America's crown, it could benefit widely from all this expertise. Plenty could yet go wrong, obviously. The technology is still evolving. Computing power could become too expensive. Local data will need to be gathered and stored. Some practitioners may lack the ability to take advantage of the knowledge at their fingertips or the incentive to try new things. Although countries in sub-Saharan Africa stand to gain the most from improvements to human capital and government services, the technology will spread more slowly there than elsewhere without better connectivity, governance, and regulation. The good news is that investments to speed AI's diffusion will be richly rewarded. Much about the AI revolution is still uncertain, but there is no doubt that the technology will have many uses and that it will only get better. Emerging countries have suffered disappointments before. This time, they have a wonderful opportunity and the power to seize it. Here's another article related to our cover story called Texas Hold'em. Hugo and Magali Urbina used to consider Greg Abbott, Texas's governor, a kindred spirit. At the start of the summer, the conservative Christian retirees could be found fishing on the banks of the Rio Grande in Eagle Pass, where their pecan orchard abuts Texas's border with Mexico. Migrants would wade through the water onto their land, where federal border agencies usually picked the intruders up without much drama. In July, everything changed. Texas seized the strip of land along the river against the Urbina's will. State troopers laid down razor wire, and migrants bleeding from cuts began to climb ashore. Unlike the federal agents, state police were directed not to help the new arrivals, and by some accounts were told to push them back into the water. By Christmas, the couple had grown accustomed to finding little girls wandering alone in their orchard and seeing dead bodies beneath the trees. They blame Mr. Abbott. 
Three years ago, shortly after Joe Biden's inauguration, the Texas governor launched Operation Lone Star. As migrant arrivals at the border surged, Mr. Abbott reckoned it was up to Texas to use state power to staunch the crisis. He declared a disaster in dozens of Texas counties and deployed the Texas National Guard as well as state police officers. They had no power to enforce federal laws, but they arrested thousands of people for criminal trespass. As a partisan gambit, the plan worked brilliantly. Texas Republicans have ignited a constitutional battle with Washington over whether their state has the right to police its own international border and even displace federal border agents. Mr. Abbott, meanwhile, bust asylum seekers to cities run by Democrats, contributing to a surge of arrivals that overwhelmed shelters and drained social service budgets. Democrats dismissed the busing as a stunt, which it unarguably was, yet it compelled big city mayors to confront the re- of skyrocketing migration and to lobby the Biden administration for help. In December, Mr. Abbott signed Senate Bill 4, a law which allows Texans to arrest and deport people who have entered the state illegally. Most recently, state police blocked federal officers from entering Shelby Park, a busy stretch of the border near the Urbinus' property in Eagle Pass. Mr. Abbott sometimes talks like an old West marshal who must stand up for Texas citizens because Democrats in Washington won't. The only thing that we're not doing is we're not shooting people who come across the border because, of course, the Biden administration would charge us with murder, the governor said on a talk show in early January. Texas's actions are begging for constitutional review. In 2012, the Supreme Court struck down much of Arizona's Senate Bill 1070, a law that made illegal immigration a state crime and allowed cops to ask people to prove citizenship on demand. The recent policing in Texas constitutes a far more aggressive interpretation of state power, says Denise Gilman of the University of Texas at Austin. On January 22nd, in one of several cases challenging Operation Lone Star, the Supreme Court issued an emergency 5-4 ruling against Texas and for the Biden administration holding that federal border agents had the right to cut razor wire installed by Texas police. More such litigation awaits, and the narrow margin in the razor wire matter suggests the court's expanded conservative majority may be unsettled about how far to go. In this instance, Justices John Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett were the only conservatives to join the court's liberal minority in backing federal power. This is not over, Mr. Abbott posted after the decision. Troopers could be seen installing more razor wire in Shelby Park the next morning. A federal lawsuit challenging buoys erected by Texas in the Rio Grande is before the Fifth Circuit and another on Senate Bill 4 sits with a district judge in Austin. 
Mr. Abbott's political instincts may be sound, but state police have done no better than the feds at deterring my migration. Last month, a record 10,000 people crossed into America from Mexico each day, and around 40% came through Eagle Pass. There, a string of buoys takes up less than a fifth of the mile in a 1,200-mile-long river border. It's like putting a postage stamp in the middle of a football field and saying, hey, stop this running back that's coming at you, says Henry Queller, a Democratic border congressman. Shelby Park, where federal agents were expelled, is about the size of a small golf golf course. Though fewer migrants arrived in January, Experts attribute the slowdown to seasonal ebbs and flows and to Mexico detaining more migrants across the river in Piedras Negras. Texas has so far expended more than $4 billion on its plan, but under prevailing rules, border countries can apply for grants only for law enforcement, jail operations, court administrations, lawyers for indigent defendants, and human remains processing. That has left many social and humanitarian needs unmet. The hospitals in Eagle Pass and El Paso are staggering under the burden of caring for wounded migrants. Eddie Morales, a Democrat who represents a border district, wants to pause asylum processing to discourage arrivals until the frenzy calms. Texas officials defend their barriers as necessary deterrents to prevent crossings of a dangerous river where many have lost their lives. Christopher Oliveras, a spokesperson for the Texas Department of Public Safety, wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter, recently. These days, the banks of the Rio Grande are strewn with enough clothing and shoes to fill a shopping mall. Horrible wrappers and stray baby socks are a reminder of the children coming through. On warmer days, Mexicans wade into the water to collect items that they can sell back home, calling out to American soldiers to throw more garments over the razor wire. The detritus is evidence of the ongoing toll of failed public policies, and politicians at every level of American government bear some responsibility. There's a graph at the bottom of this article, and um, the following explains this graph. Barack Obama was dubbed the deporter-in-chief. Indeed, he arrested and removed more undocumented immigrants than Donald Trump. Joe Biden is detaining and deporting fewer than either of his predecessors, despite the fact that border crossings are so high. Support for immigration ebbs and flows. In response to Mr. Trump's xenophobia, Americans started to feel warmer about immigration. During his last year in office, just 28% told Gallup that they wanted less of it. But American public opinion reacts against whoever is in the White House. In June, 41% said immigration should decrease, and backing for a border wall is growing even among Democrats. This next article is out of Bogota, Colombia, The Cost of Scandal. 
A criminal case against his son is undermining President Gustavo Petro. Backpacks full of cash, Caribbean condominiums, and 1.1 billion unexplained pesos, that's $281,000. These sound like details in a John Lacar novel, but the stuff of court papers, not the stuff of court papers. And yet all three appear in the evidence in a criminal case against Nicolas Petro, son of Gustavo Petro, Colombia's first avowedly left-wing president. On January 11th, Colombian prosecutors charged Mr. Petro Jr. with illicit enrichment and money laundering. The court rejected his lawyer's request to scrap the proceedings and set a trial date for the end of April. His son's predicament is part of a constellation of scandals encumbering Mr. Petro, who, nearly 18 months into office, is facing an uphill battle to win support for his ambitious program of reforms. As for Colombians, optimism about their leader's government of hope is fading. The case against his son goes like this. According to prosecutors, Mr. Petro Jr., a former regional de- deputy, took bribes from notorious figures, including a former drug trafficker and the son of a businessman alleged to have links to paramilitary groups in return for political favors. The crux of the issue is whether the dirty money helped propel his father to power in 2022. Mr. Petro Jr. admitted he had accepted the funds, but said he kept them for himself. The elder Mr. Petro has repeatedly denied any knowledge, which his son corroborates. The trial is likely to drag on. All this has sparked a probe into the government's campaign finances, entangling Mr. Petro's brother and Ricardo Roa, his former campaign manager. Both deny any impropriety. Meanwhile, Laura Sarabia, the president's former chief of staff, was hauled before prosecutors last week in an offbeat case befitting a telenovela. It involves a lie detector, the alleged wiretapping of a nanny, and another bag of cash. Ms. Sarabia also maintains her innocence. To top things off, Congress launched impeachment proceedings against Mr. Petro in December, to which his son was recently called to testify. The Supreme Court also wants to hear from him on yet another case about illicit enrichment. The scandals cast a looming shadow over the rest of Mr. Petro's term, says Sergio Guzman of Columbia Risk Analysis, a consultancy in Bogota, the capital. Mr. Petro's approval rating hit 33% in December, according to the consultancy's aggregated polling data. He now lacks the political clout needed to push through reforms. These include expanding the state's role in health care, pensions, and education. What happens next depends on what evidence the prosecution presents at his son's trial. Much also turns on who replaces the outgoing attorney general, Francisco Barbosa. 
whose term ends next month. Mr. Petro has presented a short list of three well-respected women to the Supreme Court. The appointee will oversee the case against Mr. Petro Jr., as well as others. Legal scrutiny may have compelled the president to offer up a set of nominees pure enough to put him beyond any suspicion of sacking the court in his favor. Mr. Petro's troubles are not a patch on those of past presidents. However, prosecutors are still going after former President Alvaro Uribe for alleged links to paramilitary groups and witness tampering. He maintains his innocence. As long as most of the world continues to criminalize cocaine, the politics of producer countries such as Colombia will remain dirty. Still, the saga dents the credibility of a leader who in the past has vociferously criticized the ties between politicians and organized crime. Colombians elected him to put an end to the grubby dealings of the country's political elite. A whiff of narco cash in his campaign, proven or not, appears at odds with that goal and weakens the president. Unless Mr. Petro turns things around, the Pacto Historico coalition will become just that, consigned to history. This article is from the Middle East and Africa, a region on fire. Will violence spread out of control? Dubai and Jerusalem. Ten countries have now been dragged into the fighting. If you drew a diagram of who is shooting at whom in the Middle East, it would look increasingly like a bowl of spaghetti. What began in October as a war between Israel and Hamas has now drawn in militants from four other Arab states. In addition, Iran, Israel, and Jordan all bombed Syria this month. Iran also unexpectedly bombed Pakistan, which must have wondered how it got dragged into this mess. Now, nearing its fifth month, the war in Gaza seems far from an end, despite a growing sense in Israel that the fighting has got bogged down. The Israeli army has yet to find the top leaders of Hamas or most of the Israeli hostages that the group is still holding. Israeli security officials worry that bargaining will undermine the military gains they have made. Since October 7th, the Middle East's three strongest powers have all had to reassess their security doctrines. Israel's military primacy was shaken. Iran's proxies have become a liability for their patron. And America has been dragged back to a region it wanted to leave. None is sure how to proceed. As the Gaza war drags on, a messier regional conflict keeps expanding. On January 20th, Iranian-backed militias in Iraq fired a big volley of rockets and ballistic missiles at America's Al-Assad Air Base in western Iraq. Most were intercepted by Patriot air defense batteries, but some hit the base and wounded Americans and Iraqis. The barrage followed days of Iranian attacks across the region, at alleged terrorists in Syria and Pakistan, and at a supposed Israeli spy camp in Iraq, 
Kurdistan, killing a Kurdish businessman at home with his family. The strike on Pakistan invited a retaliatory attack on Iran, though both sides now seem keen to avoid further fighting. These incidents signal deep unease within the Iranian regime. Israel is waging a not-so-secret war against it, assassinating members of its Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Syria and commanders of Hezbollah, an Iranian-backed Shia militia in Lebanon. At home, meanwhile, a series of terrorist attacks has rattled Iran's government, among them a double suicide bombing claimed by the jihadists of Islamic State that killed around 100 people. For decades, Iran has cultivated a network of proxy militias to project power across the region. Yet now it is struggling to deploy them while simultaneously keeping itself out of the conflict. It has tacitly accepted the battering of Hamas, which seems to have carried out its massacre in Israel without alerting alerting its Iranian patrons. Iran has been loath to unleash Hezbollah its most effective proxy, lest America or Israel hit Iran directly. Attacks on commercial shipping by Yemen's Houthis have brought an American-led military coalition to the Red Sea. Iran would like to force Israel into a ceasefire in Gaza and drive American troops out of the region. Its proxies have so far achieved the opposite. Yet America is also trying to find balance. President Joe Biden has been cautious. He does not want to be drawn into another war in the Middle East, certainly not in an election year. In Iraq and Syria, American forces respond far less often than they are attacked. The American campaign against the Houthis began only after repeated warnings and a U.N. Security Council resolution condemning the group's attacks on shipping. Mr. Biden admits that strikes have not detoured the Houthis, but also says they will continue. His best hope is that Israel will soon wind down its war in Gaza, which many of its allies have been demanding for months. Yisrael Katz, Israel's foreign minister, met his European counterparts on January 22nd to discuss what happens after the war. Diplomats in Brussels said the two sides talked past each other. The Europeans wanted to talk about who would govern and rebuild Gaza and how they might pursue a two-state solution between Israelis and Palestinians. Mr. Katz, however, touted a pet project to build an artificial island off Gaza's coast that would serve as a seaport, something he promoted during a stint as transport minister in 2017. His interlocutors were stunned. This doesn't have much to do with what we were discussing, said Joseph Borrell, the EU's top diplomat. Arab states, meanwhile, are quietly promoting their own plan to end the war. Saudi Arabia would agree to normalize relations with Israel in exchange for a commitment to create a Palestinian state.
Gulf states are wary of being cradled, saddled with responsibility for a ruined Gaza, but are willing to support the Palestinians' authority, which governs part of the West Bank, if it resumes control in Gaza. The plan is a long shot, not least because Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, is a longtime opponent of Palestinian statehood. After Mr. Biden spoke with him earlier this month, the president suggested Mr. Netanyahu might be amenable to creating a demilitarized Palestine. I think we'll be able to work something out, he said. Mr. Netanyahu rushed to rebuff him, insisting that Israel would have to control everything west of the Jordan River, asserting that such a position was contrary to to a Palestinian state. Israel has withdrawn many of its troops from northern Gaza, leaving one division to search for tunnels and prevent Hamas from regaining a foothold there. A second division is holding the line between northern and southern Gaza, while a third has encircled Khan Yunus in southern Gaza, the site of heavy fighting in recent days. The Palestinian death toll has passed 25,000, the majority civilians, with probably thousands more yet to be counted. The UN says one-fifth of children under five have diarrhea. But Mr. Netanyahu's battle for political survival is still dictating Israel's strategy and the fate of the hostages in Gaza. The first hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, which freed no Israeli and foreign captives at the end of November, was brokered by Qatar. Egypt played a supporting role. There are still 136 hostages, though Israel presumes at least 29 are dead. Now Egypt is leading the push to free them, largely out of economic self-interest. The chaos in the Red Sea has caused only modest economic damage to Israel. Most of its sea trade goes through Mediterranean ports. Egypt has paid a bigger price. It has seen a 40% reduction in revenue from the Suez Canal, a vital source of hard currency. That has added to fears of a possible default in a country struggling with dollar shortages and buried under a pile of government debt, 93% of GDP. The Egyptian pound has dropped to around 60 to, to the dollar, on the black market, down from 50 last month, and 50% below the official rate. Egypt does not think that American-led strikes on the Houthis will deter the group from its attacks on ships. For Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the country's president, the only way to get his canal working again is a ceasefire in Gaza. To that end, Egypt has taken the lead in indirect talks between Israel and Hamas, though the Qatari channel is still open as well. The deal Egypt is promoting would come in two stages. First would be a humanitarian release of civilian hostages in return for a truce that could last several weeks, perhaps even a month or two. Israel would also free hundreds of Palestinian prisoners.
The second stage would free captive Israeli soldiers in exchange for a full ceasefire and Israeli withdrawal from Gaza and the release of even more Palestinians, probably thousands of them. These conditions are dividing the Israeli government. Its more pragmatic wing, led by Benny Gantz, a former defense minister who joins the war cabinet in October, supports a lengthy truce to feel free the hostages. This group wants to pair that with negotiations for a new government in Gaza. Leaving Hamas in power would be anathema, anathema, sorry, anathema to most Israelis. But Mr. Netanyahu's right-wing coalition partners adamantly oppose any ceasefire. Bazalel Smotrich, the finance minister, said on January 24th, we cannot agree to stopping the war at this stage for such a long period. Mr. Netanyahu, as usually, is prevaricating while he tries to keep both parts of his government on board. In public, he promises to continue until total victory. In private, he has allowed Israel's representatives to continue negotiating, but he is unlikely to do anything that would drive away the far right, without whom he would not have returned to office in December 2022. Hamas is also divided over the deal. Its political leaders, shuttling between Doha and Cairo for talks, are in favor of accepting the first stage of the government. They are aware that holding civilian hostages continues to damage their cause. But the leaders in Gaza want an Israeli withdrawal before another release of hostages. Their demand that Israel free Hamas terrorists also took part in the October massacre is another potential deal-breaker, since Israel is highly unlikely to accept that condition. Mr. Netanyahu may have to make a decision soon, though. In an interview broadcast on January 18th, Gadi Eisenkot, a war cabinet member and former army chief, hinted at a push for early elections. We need, in this time range of months, to go back to the Israeli voter and renew trust, he said. It is now a matter of time before the emergency war cabinet is dissolved. Protests in Israeli cities are growing. Many are led by the families of hostages calling for a ceasefire and for Mr. Netanyahu's resignation. His centrist partners are likely to leave the coalition if they do not soon get an answer on a hostage deal and Israel's post-war strategy. Until then, it's deadlock, says an Israeli security man. The political leadership won't make a decision, and if they don't, a lot of the gains we achieved at great cost will be eroded. Russia's plan to seduce Christians. From Kisi, the Ukraine war has split Africa's Orthodox Church. On a hillside in Kisi, western Kenya, the congregation of St. Peter's Church convened for a special mass on January 7th. In the Russian calendar, today is Christmas Day, says Hezekiah Johnson 
Otara, the priest. To mark the occasion, Mr. Otara picked four girls from the 70-odd worshippers and promised to pay their school fees for the coming year. Mr. Otara is one of scores of African priests who have switched to Russia's branch of Orthodox Christianity as the fallout from the Ukraine war has unexpected consequences across the world. He joined the Patriarchal Exarchate of Africa, which claims jurisdiction over more than 200 parishes in 25 African countries and plans to build schools, hospitals, and cathedrals, including a huge spiritual center opposite the presidential palace in Uganda. One possible reason for the Russia Church's African adventure is to do down the Patriarch of Alexandria, a branch of the Greek Orthodox Church. The Russian Orthodox Church considers all Ukrainian Orthodox churches to be under its authority. But in 2019, the Greek Orthodox Patriarchs of Constantinople and then Alexandria recognized the independence of the newly formed Orthodox Church of Ukraine. Patriarch Kirill, the Russian church's head, broke off relations with Alexandria and Constantinople, damning their support for Ukrainian schismatics. In revenge, the Russians are now muscling in on the Greek Orthodox Church, which claims exclusive jurisdiction over Africa and accuses the Russian church of trying to lure its priests away with money. They want to humiliate us because of our connection with Ukraine, says Archbishop Makarios of Nairobi. Most of the Russian church's priests in Africa, including Mr. Otara, are Greek-trained clerics who have switched teams. In Kenya alone, at least 90 have defected, nearly half the total number of African priests whose loyalty the Russian church now claims to command. Asked why he joined the Russians, Mr. Ortara cites the schism in Ukraine. He does not deny, however, that the move also brought some rather worldly benefits. They have doubled his salary, paid for his sons to study nursing in Moscow, and contributed money to the orphanage he runs. Russia may have more than ecclesiastical goals in mind. Punishing the Alexandrian patriarch was just an excuse, says Cyril Hovorum, a Ukrainian theology, theologian. He believes the Russian church waded into Africa to spread propaganda and stoke hostility toward the West. The idea is less risible than it may seem at first. The Russian church's favorite subject, traditional values, and how the decadent West wants to pervert them, aligns with conservative religious views in Africa, where clerics tend to oppose homosexuality. Yet the Russian foray seems half-hearted and poorly financed. Most of its churches are shacks, like the one in Mr. Otora's parish. It appears to have built no schools or hospitals. Even evidence of a well-organized propaganda campaign is thin on the ground. The Russians might pay more, but many priests are still too busy making ends meet to rail against the West. 
I normally do some hide hustling, side hustling, explains one of the church's priests in Western Kenya, who runs a shop in his spare time. It's for survival and for my children. Many of the Russian church's problems can be blamed on erratic leadership. Leonid Gorbachev, a former bishop of Klin, was initially appointed to run the African outpost. Mr. Hoverun, who knew him as a student in Athens during the early 2000s, says he was always more interested in Russian military cannons than in the cannons of the church. Mr. Gorbachev later became a vocal supporter of Yevgeny Prigazin, the late leader of the Wagner Mercenary Group. He was sacked shortly after Prigazin's failed mutiny last summer. The defenestration has thrown Russia's African church into disarray. Its priests say they are facing funding cuts. Projects have been put on hold. Mr. Horovan believes the enterprise is winding down. Even if that is wishful thinking, Russia's holy adventure looks more quixotic than menacing. We have time for a couple letters to the editor. This one from Taylor Hartstein in Edgewood, New Mexico. Lexington repeated the common assertion that John Kennedy did not wear a hat during his inauguration. Actually, Kennedy wore a top hat en route to his inauguration ceremony and to the evening balls. In a nod to tradition, he reinstated the top hat after his predecessor, Dwight Eisenhower, wore a Hamburg to both of his inaugurations. It is true that Kennedy took off his hat to take the oath of office and to make his inaugural address, but that was nothing new. Eisenhower doffed his Hamburg to do the same in 1953 and 1957, and Harry Truman shed his top hat for the oath of August office and inaugural address in 1949. The next letter was written by Peter Dejmek from Malmo, Sweden. I am perplexed at the notion that anybody who has read the sagas of Icelanders could find them boring. You get heroes, scoundrels, resourceful women, spiteful women, war, sorcery, murder, torture, loyalty, betrayal, revenge, and poetry. The sagas have a trademark terse style, such as when one of the heroes remarks on the rising popularity of short stabbing spears after he is fatally stabbed at the door of his house. Boring? That's all the time we have for today. This has been Mary Kiefer with a reading of The Economist. I hope you have enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.